Welcome to Frankly Judaic, a podcast that explores cutting-edge Judaic studies research conducted at the University of Michigan. I'm your host, Jeremy Shear. If you've ever visited Israel, you've most likely spent some time in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, maybe also Haifa and Eilat. But chances are you didn't go to places like Sterot, Ofakim, and Kiryat Shmona, development towns that are typically poorer and less glamorous than Israel's larger and more famous cities. But while development towns may not attract many tourists, there are fascinating places for scholars, such as Erez Tzvadia, an associate professor of public policy and administration at Sapir Academic College in Israel, and a fellow at the Frankel Center for Judaic Studies, whose current research project explores how the demographics of development towns have changed over time and what the changes mean for Israeli society. The story of these small towns is that up until the 1990s, about 85% of the people who lived there had their origins in Muslim countries. That means that there were Mizrahi Jews, mainly from North Africa, by the way. And from 1990, in a very short period, new groups of immigrants came into this town, and all of a sudden the towns were not as they used to be before. And this is something, you know, very interesting in terms of sociology, in terms of geography, in terms of urban studies, and very important to understand what is the meaning of Jewish society in Israel. To understand how and why development towns changed and why it matters, we need to go back in time to when the towns were first established. Following the 1948 Israel-Arab War, Arab countries responded by expelling most of their Jewish populations. Hundreds of thousands of Jews from Morocco, Iraq, Iran, Egypt, Libya, Syria, and Tunisia, whose families had lived in Muslim lands for many generations, had little choice but to immigrate to the newly formed Jewish state. The Ashkenazi Zionist establishment, which in large part looked at these Eastern, or Mizrahi Jews, as less cultured and less desirable than European Jews, housed most of the newcomers in transit camps, known as Ma'abarot, and afterward directed them to new villages and towns located in the Galilee in northern Israel and in the Negev Desert to the south. According to Tzfadia, the fledgling Israeli government initially built the villages and towns as part of a plan to claim more territory for Israel at the expense of Palestinian Arabs who had occupied the land not long before. They initiated a settlement project, which means a project that aimed to bring Jews to the territories that's supposed to be part of the Palestinian state. Now, many of these uh, of the people who lived there before were Palestinian who became refugees, and the idea was to block the returnee of the Palestinian back to their homes and back to their land. And the main mean to do so was to build towns and villages for Jews only. The towns, which became known as development towns, seemed to the Zionist establishment to be a good fit for the Mizrahi Jewish refugees, who were not very different in appearance and culture from the Palestinian enemies they replaced. They share similar cultural uh, habits, they share the same language, 
they dressed in a similar way. They were not, you know, the Jews that the Zionist state dreamed of. And for that reason, they were very good to go to the territories in order to bring the control of the state to the new territory, and the state of Israel could distance the Mizrahi Jews away from the centers of power and wealth, which is Tel Aviv and the central regions of Israel. Over the next few decades, development towns such as Kiryat Shmona, Sterot, Ofakim, and several dozen others were inhabited almost exclusively by Mizrahi Jews. The towns were relatively poor, and the Mizrahim who lived in them were largely segregated from Ashkenazi Jewish society and mostly did not have access to the same educational and career opportunities. But Mizrahi Jews did gain some measure of political power in the towns, and the homogeneity of the population gave rise to a strong sense of Mizrahi identity and culture, known as Mizrahiut. The demographic makeup of the development towns began to change radically in the early 1990s, when around one million Russian Jews immigrated from the Soviet Union to Israel. Tzfadia says that many Israeli politicians saw the wave of Russian Jewish immigration as an opportunity to Judaize Judea and Samaria, also known as the West Bank, by settling Russian Jews there. But when the United States shut down that plan, Israeli leaders decided instead to send the new immigrants to the development towns. Because the development towns, you know, are not only towns, but they are towns in areas that used to be part of what's supposed to be the Palestinian state. And there are many Palestinian, many Arabs, citizens of Israel that still live in these places. Ariel Sharon spoke about Judaizing the Galilee, Judaizing the Negev, the, the regions where the development towns are located. Development towns were also attractive as a destination for the Russian Jews because the arrival of so many new immigrants created a need for new housing. And it was easier and cheaper to build large housing projects in development towns than it would have been in Tel Aviv, Haifa, or Jerusalem. And so, within a few years, the population of the towns doubled, causing tension between the newly arrived Russians and the Mizrahi Jewish families who'd been living in the towns for decades. For one thing, many of the Russian Jews who settled in the towns needed lots of government services. They are too old. They are not in a very good health condition. They don't have a very good profession uh, to become part of the labor market. And for that reason, within three or four years, actually increased the people who need social care by 650%. That means seven times, seven and a half times. You know, it's a lot. You know, that's been a catastrophe in terms of social care or in terms of services that the local authorities need to, to, to supply to the new people who just came. The arrival of Russian Jews also sparked competition among Mizrahim and Russian immigrants over the new housing units. Affordable housing, but still, you know, new houses. And people who lived in, in, in houses that were built 40 years before say, hey, we, need, we want these houses too. But said, no, 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 it's social houses and uh, we build these houses for the new immigrants. And then, you know, started a competition in the labor market. 
There was also competition over employment. To ease the absorption of Russian Jews into the labor market, the Israeli government paid businesses to employ them, which made it harder for Mizrahi Jews competing for the same jobs. All of a sudden, you know, Mizrahim, who worked for many, many years, found himself without work because, you know, the business sector preferred the, the Russians because the, somebody paid their salary, you know, or part of the salary, you know. It's much better to, to hire them. So, so, so we get a competition within, in the labor market. The competition over resources and growing resentment among the competing groups sometimes erupted in violence. Tzfadia recalls speaking with an American volunteer teacher working in schools in Ofakim, a development town in the Negev in southern Israel. The young woman had been in Israel only a few weeks before she decided to leave. Tzfadia asked why. She said, I cannot stand the idea that kids are fighting all the time and the fighting are between Mizrahi kids and Russian kids. She couldn't imagine a situation that Mizrahi uh, kids and Russian kids fight uh, one against the other. It's a story that in a very short time the development towns were not the same. It was a very difficult process that took place in a very short time and you know it damaged the towns in some of the towns by the way like Arad actually the 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 people who lived there before left the town in the 1990s local elections became another source of tension and conflict because the immigrants decided that they do not trust the Mizrahim and they do not trust the, the mayors to take care of them. So they got their own community leaders that actually compete for becoming mayors. But even if they couldn't make mayors of, out of their people, the competition was there. And you couldn't ignore the fact that, you know, the elections became a war zone of who controlled the town between Mizrahim and, 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 and Russians. Consequently, the development towns became highly segregated, with each group walling itself off from the other. Every community started to develop its own community centers, uh, its own uh, after-school education, uh, its own uh, cultural events. Uh, nobody touched each other mm. for a very long time. Like, for example, uh, if you hear that there is a, a class for in chemistry, be sure. <laughs> this is for Russians. You know, if it's music, classical music, Russian. Non-classical music, Mizrahi. In many ways, Mizrahi Jews resented the influx of Russian immigrants and the upheavals it caused. The towns were never wealthy, but after the wave of Russian-Jewish settlement, they became significantly less well-off. And despite the competition over new housing, many Mizrahi Jews saw the developments as ugly intrusions. Yet, at the same time, the turmoil caused by the newcomers fostered a sense of pride and belonging among Mizrahi Jews. The Mizrahi said, we are serving the Zionist project of helping Jews to live in Israel. 
So, you know, this was the grand story. We are part of the Zionist project that aimed to bring Jews to the land of Israel. Meanwhile, the development towns were about to undergo another radical demographic change. Housing prices in Israel spiked, spurring Israel's poorest demographic segment, the ultra-Orthodox, to seek cheaper accommodations. People started to ask themselves, where can we find affordable houses? And the answer was, in the development towns. Mm. And the ultra-Orthodox community in Israel, which considered to be the poorest community in Israel, the rabbis thought that it might be a good idea to build new ultra-Orthodox centers in the development towns. Most of the development towns fought to keep the ultra-Orthodox out. They believed, you know, these people are not coming to work and they are not going to to contribute to the local economy and they will live in their own uh, ghettos. Ultimately, though, there wasn't much the Mizrahi residents could do to stop the arrival of ultra-Orthodox Jews. And so some mayors decided to cooperate with the newcomers. They started to to build uh, ultra-Orthodox schools and ultra-Orthodox yeshivas and uh, allocate land for for synagogues and, and so on. Mizrahi cooperation with the ultra-Orthodox was, on the one hand, meant to avoid conflict. And on the other hand, you know, to, let's call it this way, to segregate the ultra-Orthodox community in their own uh, uh, neighborhoods with their own uh, public services and, and, and cultural facilities. Before long, driven by skyrocketing housing prices, the Israeli government invested in massive new housing projects in development towns, which attracted young, middle-class families seeking more affordable housing. Within a relatively short time, the demographic composition of the towns had once again been fundamentally altered. It means that the Mizrahim became a minority, actually. Uh, in the towns. They live among ultra-Orthodox, among Russians, among middle-class Jews coming to the towns these days, many young families. So, so you know, the demographic changes created something to the Mizrahim in towns, and they started to develop many alternatives that aim to symbolize their belonging to the towns. For example, religious Mizrahi Jews made a point of shielding their synagogues from outside influence and maintained a Sephardic style of prayer and worship. Upwardly mobile Mizrahi Jews began building new neighborhoods and fostering a more distinctly Mizrahi culture. Musicians, theater, all got the orientation of Mizrahi identity, you know. All of a sudden, the Mizrahi music, for example, became a symbol for many of the development towns. It's fascinating. You take, for example, a city like Sderot, which is known as the city of music. It's a Mizrahi music. They created something that relate to the Mizrahi culture, to the oriental uh, music uh, in the towns. And this is how they demonstrate the idea is that the towns are actually Mizrahi places. It's worth noting, Tzfadia says, that development towns are not an exclusively Israeli phenomenon. 
Building new towns and populating them with immigrants and marginalized communities has been a common tactic used by states around the world to gain control over new territory. And so we need to pay attention to the effects of social and demographic engineering and urban development in these places. We should ask ourselves what are the social meanings of new construction, especially when it takes place in a very sensitive places like remote towns. You know, small towns is something that we need to refigure out how we treat because, you know, urbanism focus on Detroit, Chicago, New York, uh, LA. You know, this is what we think we're thinking about the city. But the great majority of the people in the world today do not live in big cities. They live in small cities. They live in small towns. And the idea of getting into these small towns, into small cities, is something that we need to consider as policymakers, as social scientists, and even in cultural studies. You've been listening to Frankly Judaic, a production of the Jean and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. The podcast is produced by Conversa. The executive producer is Maya Barzilai. You can find and subscribe to Frankly Judaic anywhere you get podcasts. And if you like the show, please give it a five-star review. Thanks for listening.